Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Our topic today is transnational solidarities, the history of movements, networks, organizations, and affinities that have pulled people together from different parts of the globe. To introduce the discussion and its participants, I'll hand over to my History Workshop colleague, Ria Kapoor. My name is Ria Kapoor, and I'm speaking to Lydia Walker and Sulan Lewis about transnational solidarities today. Lydia Walker is a historian of 20th century decolonization, focusing on post-1945 political transformation, institutions of international order, the role of non-state actors and indigenous groups in international relations, religiously infused nationalisms and activisms, as well as definitions of sovereignty. She's the postdoctoral fellow on the European Research Grant funded um, Research Council funded project challenging the liberal world order from within the invisible history of the United Nations and the global south. Sulein Lewis works on global and transnational histories in the 20th century, focusing on urban history, civil society, gender and decolonization. She works primarily on Southeast Asia. Sulein is currently an AHRC Early Career Leadership Fellow, working on a project on socialist internationalism in the Afro-Asian world, and co-leads a collaborative research project on Afro-Asian networks in the early Cold War, which is also funded by the AHRC. Lydia and Sulein, I'm going to get the ball rolling with the first question. What are we talking about when we say transnational solidarity in the first place? I guess I'll jump in first. I think... I guess we can be talking about movements, we can be talking about networks, and then we can, and this is a, we can be talking about organizations, and we can be talking about, I guess this is a subset of networks, but the sort of affinities and connections between individuals. And I'm framing it in that way, because I think often we think of it as uh, movements, and Yes, you have uh, you have movements, you have anti-colonial nationalist movements, you have connections between uh, many of them. Uh, you have civil society organizations uh, focused uh, for, on humanitarian and uh, human rights issues. And then you also have individuals who are participants in multiple movements, um, multiple organizations are friends and I think maybe enemy might be too strong a word, but often these friendships can be quite charged and uh, contain uh, sort of multitudes. Um, in my own work, I often focus on transnational advocacy networks, which is a term I think first used by uh, Margaret Keck and Catherine Sickink, who are uh, political scientists. And I like to sort of chart the individual, the connections between individuals who are part of these movements, part of these organizations. We can get at this later about sort of state versus non-state distinctions, but I think that sometimes when you're talking about so-called non-state actors, people who don't represent, don't formally represent uh, official governments, these transnational solidarities provide the space for them to operate within. Um, so that they, so, and when we talk about movements and we talk about uh, anti-colonial nationalist movements, even dominant ones, 
This is also the period of time before they become a state government. So there's also a chronological element to this where often these solidarities occur before independence, before this kind of formalization. And what is a transnational solidarity in some ways? It's, dipl it's diplomacy between entities that aren't formal uh, diplomatic, that don't have that kind, that aren't state governments, that uh, don't have an official foreign service to be doing these kinds of uh, transnational activities. Anyway, I can go on, I'm going to stop. Um, because a lot of these things are aspects we'll probably be pulling through uh, through the entire conversation. Thanks, Lydia. That was a great definition. Um, I'll try to follow on from that. I I was also thinking about solidarity as as movement, as a form of movement, just because that is the way it's traditionally understood. Um, I guess I, I went back to uh, David Featherstone's ideas about solidarity as a relation forced through political struggle, which seeks to challenge forms of oppression. And I think that that was really kind of what I was thinking too in thinking about movements or identifications that recognize the struggle of struggles of others to challenge oppression and express support for those struggles. Um, and part of that is in, 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 in recognizing that you're participating in a shared struggle, that there's connections between those struggles and, and our own common humanity. And perhaps that's a very idealistic vision of, of solidarity, but I guess that's because I work a lot on anti-colonial solidarity and think about the idealism of those movements. And, you know, and I think that, uh, as, as you said, anti-colonial solidarity is, is one of those feelings, is one of those movements, is one of those forms of identification that happens early on, that, that a lot of these, 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 these people, these movements that are under colonial oppression are participating in, and, and a lot of them are coming together. And it's, it's interesting because those, those movements pulled together not only countries that were uh, under colonial rule, but also African-Americans that were in, you know, that are obviously kind of facing problems of the color bar and, and issues of racial oppression and similar issues. But all of those are, are kind of seen as part of a, an anti-colonial solidarity movement that is happening early on. I think the first Pan-African Congress is around 1900. And and, you know, and then we have this kind of major conference in, in Brussels in, in 1927, the League Against Imperialism, which again pulls together African-Americans and Africans and Asians under colonial rule. And then we have kind of these anti-colonial solidarity campaigns that are happening in the 1950s by Asian, especially, you know, driven by Asian countries that have already gotten independence, but also recognize the importance of campaigning for independence for African countries and, and other countries that are still under colonial rule. And there's a really interesting, you know, motivation there in terms of why this happens. And part of it is recognizing that, the, that decolonization is an ongoing process, that it hasn't ended psychologically, um, even if it's ended politically. And, and part of that is also recognizing themselves as part of a wider international order that is still facing problems of colonialism in, in the economy and politics and really trying to create a kind of a unified movement in the global south in between Africa and Asia that will challenge those structures of oppression. Yeah, so uh, that's kind of what I was thinking, thinking about 
solidarity. There's other kind of examples that came to mind. Um, I guess I've been thinking a lot about socialism, probably one of the most longstanding examples of, of transnational solidarity, right? This first international is in 1864, and really thinking about the internationalism of the working class and, and the, the ways in which the working class all over the world is, is trying to deal with these you know, capitalist structures and, and problems of labor oppression. And I've also been thinking about women's movements and, and the way in which you know, that women's movements has, have, have often been transnational and, and they, take, they take various forms from, from kind of radical feminism to more conservative women's movements, but recognize that there are similar issues around gender equality, around violence against women um, that happen all over the world and happen because of um, the fact of being, being women and being kind of, or, or being kind of victims to, to structures of patriarchal oppression. So I think those are kind of the three examples that came to me you know, anti-colonial solidarity, socialism, and, and women's movements when I was thinking about this issue of transnational solidarities. Thank you so much for that. That's, that. Those are such rich definitions. So the big question I have now is how do these movements come into being? Clearly their oppression leads to this sort of a shared sentiment, but how do they organize? How do you create this diplomacy for those who aren't represented by formal structures? Yeah, so I think it might be easiest to make this concrete by speaking about a particular example. And like all examples, this is one story and you can tell other stories of the formations of other networks. I've been working on a manuscript called uh, States in Waiting that looks at uh, nationalist claims that weren't able to achieve independence during sort of uh, post-war decolonization seeming moment of political possibility in the 50s and 60s. And when you are not a recognized state, you do not get to make claims in international politics um, unless you're bought, brought into the room by a state delegation. So a lot of these claimants use a sort of loose network of transnational advocacy. And this network that I track is from the international peace movement. And it combines Indian um, Sarvodia workers, uh, Sarvodia being kind of the sort of post-Gandhi, Gandhian movement uh, in India, which has uh, strong international dimensions. The U.S. civil rights movement, uh, activists such as Baird Rustin, uh, A.J. Musty, and Bill Sutherland, and also the sort of uh, British anti-apartheid movement where uh, Reverend Michael Scott is sort of the central figure here. And, and the central figure of the um, Sarvodia, sort of the globalized Sarvodia movement is uh, Jaya Prakash Narayan. And all these figures know each other incredibly well and actually sort of first cut their teeth in sort of getting together, working on the Indian independence movement. Nico Slate has uh, written about this, uh, I think fairly extensively, and he focuses uh, predominantly on the relationships between uh, the Indian independence movement and uh, US civil rights, uh, but and many others have connected sort of uh, general liberatory activisms in the UK with the Indi Indian independence movement. Those are uh, very direct connections. And so they knew each other and worked together uh, before 1947 on those issues. So I'm not necessarily saying that the Indian independence movement is the brew for these transnational solidarities. 
I'm saying that for this particular network, that is uh, where they came from. And I think you can see often there's a, a, sh a, str a shared struggle where people meet each other, connect, and then move off from there. There's also, there's a whole brew of activisms in this period, whether it's a sort of anti-colonial nationalism in the interwar era in much more of these Asian contexts. And Sulin will can talk much more extensively about that. The anti-apartheid movement and anti-colonial nationalism sort of more in a uh, sub-Saharan African, uh, not just sub-Saharan African, actually Algeria matters quite extensively here in the African context. Also the global nuclear disarmament movement after the second world war, it figures within this. And of course, um, US civil rights. So the World Peace Brigade comes out of this kind of brew of activisms and they are aimed, they are founded in uh, 1961 uh, in uh, Burmana, Lebanon, after fully sort of articulating themselves a year prior in a conference in India. Their aim is to help decolonization escape what they term its entrapment of, in violence. And their first big project, um, they're based in Dar es Salaam, and invited by uh, Julius Nerere. This is around uh, 1962. And they are helping uh, Kenneth Kaunda, who's the leader for what will eventually become an independent Zambia a couple of years uh, later. And they're supposed to lead a march from Dar to what's then Northern Rhodesia. This march never happens. A year after that, 1963, they uh, lead a march that's going to go from New Delhi to China. It never reaches China and it ends in Northeast India. So it's all, this is a story and can get into more of the details later of sort of, of halted marches, of endeavors that don't come to fruition and often of um, in lots of internal disagreement and uh, difficulty. But it's also a story of deep friendships, friendships that aren't necessarily that friendships that aren't simple, friendships that contain disagreement, uh, disagreement over tactics, probably much more than disagreements over vision, but uh, tactics matter uh, quite significantly and the context of activities uh, matter quite significantly. The Sarvodia workers who are in Dar es Salaam um, have very different needs than when they're marching in India and in a very different political context, especially after the 1962 Sino-Indian War, and they're marching, uh, they want to march through the Sino-Indian borderlands. You know, how do these come into being? Uh, they come into being because there's a shared endeavor, and you have a lot of different interests that inform these movements, and sometimes these interests can fracture. A much more famous march that happens in 1963 is the March on Washington, organized to a large extent by Baird Rustin. And um, many of his colleagues would have preferred that he was in uh, India uh, during that march that we know that's much uh, less uh, well known. But there's only so many people who can be doing these activities and you end up often with a limited amount of time, energy and money on these issues. I think about this with solidarity is that in any connection we often want to see cooperation. And we see we think of a connection, we think of cooperation, we think of affinity, but connections often contain disagreements and how to look at the sort of, not necessarily lack of solidarity within these solidarities, 
but uh, to not paint them with rose-colored glasses, not even when we are seeing uh, ideological alignments that we may be quite sympathetic to, but to uh, look at the the tensions, the conflicts, and what they articulate and what they lay out, because there really isn't any ideological conflict between these liberatory movements. In this case, sometimes there are, in others there may well be, but there often is conflict between priorities, between attention, uh, between uh, finances. And that is something that I sort of outline on the World Peace Brigade where, you know, it's not necessarily so global because it's a very specific network of an Anglophone network that combines U.S. civil rights movement, the anti-apartheid movement, and uh, in sort of post-Gandhian politics within India. It's not so peaceful because they're always in disagreement. And it's rather small, you know, a, mil a brigade is much larger than this. So the whole name of it in some ways is a bit of a misnomer. And another, to connect to some of my opening remarks, one of the aspects I found quite interesting in this network is how important the individuals are in other capacities versus the organization itself. The organization itself, um, many of the listeners will probably not have heard of before I mentioned it, but the Majai um, Prakash Narayan, uh, Baird Rustin, AJ Musty, Bill Sutherland, Michael Scott are quite well known in many other contexts. So at what times does the individual have in some ways more primacy within these movements than uh, the movements themselves is sort of an interesting question to explore. Thanks so much, Lydia. I, I was getting really excited because there's so many fascinating parallels and intersections with the kinds of uh, solidarity movements I'm examining in this period. I think that both of us are talking a lot about this early Cold War period in the 1950s and 1960s. And I think that what's fascinating about this particular period is that it is a truly international period of world making, of, of remaking the world after empire. And, and I think that it's also a period of, of pushing back against this kind of broader context of the Cold War and in really trying to find an alternative system. And I think that's also, it's in, in some ways what the World Peace Brigade is doing, but also trying to kind of really find a way out of this, this real climate of fear, right? When we talk about the 1955 Afro-Asian conference in Bandung, which really brings together a lot of these anti-colonial movements and is a real expression of Afro-Asian solidarity, you know, Sukarno's opening speech is all about fear, is all about this period of, of you know, of the fear of nuclear war, the fear of these, these you know, great powers and, and where that leaves the rest of the world and especially the, the kind of Asian and African nations. And part of the, Af you know, the Afro-Asian solidarity is about, is figuring out a kind of an optimistic visioning of the third world, right? A, a visioning of a, a, a third a third approach to the first world and the second world, a, a more idealistic world and a more, um, and a world that is, you know, beyond colonialism, that is in some senses, not wholly capitalist and not wholly communist, that it is, that it, 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 it doesn't lay out a political vision as a, a kind of, a socialist vision as such, but many of the leaders are, you know, leaning socialist. 
And I think what's interesting about this period is that 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 movement, that kind of Bandung moment is very much driven by states. It's driven by, you know, post-colonial states, as I mentioned, Asian states that have gotten their independence and are looking to support African independence movements and movements in, in Vietnam and Malaya. Um, but I think that uh, what's interesting is that these were all activists before, right? These are activists that became the, that became the leaders of, of their, their nations. And I think that's a kind of interesting intersection between states and non-state visions of, of these movements and, and ways these movements come about. But I think, you know, what's really interesting about the, the Afro-Asian conference is that a lot of the people that were critiques of this conference that I just found this this file um, that was that was from the kind of Indonesian socialists that were critiquing Afro-Asian solidarity and President Sukarno's vision of Afro-Asian solidarity as a distraction from economic deterioration in Indonesia. What's interesting about that is that the Indonesian socialists were also pioneers of Afro-Asian solidarity. So I've written about the Asian Socialist Conference that happened a couple of years before Bandung and really kind of recognized again, you know, really recognize the importance of Afro-Asian solidarity and the, and, and the importance of these ongoing independent struggles. And of course, one of the members of, of that from, from the Indian Socialist Party, the Praha Socialist Party was Jayaprakash Narayan, who Lydia has just mentioned. And again, really interesting intersections between socialism and, you know, kind of this period of Afro-Asian solidarity that, that often don't get recognized. And one of the things I argued in, in a recent article is that, you know, we, we recognize the kind of main political leaders that were affiliated with the Bandung Conference because it's very much entrenched in national narratives, especially in Indonesia um, and elsewhere, right? That this is, this is the kind of big moment of diplomatic solidarity. And it continues to be reenacted in the 50th and 60th anniversaries. China kind of, you know, plays on the importance of Bandung and the Bandung spirit. But what's forgotten is these kind of earlier movements, these socialist movements that were happening by often the political opponents of Nehru and Sukarno. And we forget about them because they're kind of written out of the national narrative. And similarly, I think, you know, some of the socialists that were operating in that period of global solidarity, another one of the socialists that I have looked at and written about is a Philip Randolph, African-American civil rights leader who was a mentor to Bayard Rustin and also helped co-organize the, um, the March on Washington. And all of these networks are happening and have often been forgotten about, as Lydia says. We, we, we remember some of the names. We don't remember some of these broader movements because they're brittle. They are vulnerable to especially kind of national narratives and and, and they're, they're often just forgotten about because they're, they're very fragile. They are, again, I think part of this very fragile internationalist moment of the 50s and 60s that I think uh, the internationalism of that period has often been kind of glossed over and buried by, by other kinds of histories. And I think that's, that's a really important thing to remember about this period. I don't know how you feel about that, Lydia. Yeah, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking, I was thinking more about, I mean, I said, oh, these, these, uh, the solidarities that the affinities that ended up creating the commute, the sort of the World Peace Brigade, or I often refer to it as the brigade community, because they have a lot of uh, collaborators who aren't formally members. And it's much more about a sphere or in the words of one of their members, they call themselves an extra legal establishment is an interesting term beyond the specific organization of the brigade, which is 
I like that word brittle and that kind of fr fragility. And it's, I think in some ways, something that was much greater than the sum of its part. I mean, the parts were much greater than the whole in a sort of interesting kind of reversal of the usual thinking. But I said, this is really the, the origins of this was their work regarding the Indian independence movement. They were also all connected to elements of the communists of the global communist party and uh, sort of, and sort of socialist networks before um, the Second World War. And most of them had a sort of a Stalinist disillusionment moment and really left. And then I would say in, embraced elements of Cold War liberalism, which is rooted in this politics of fear that you're talking about, Sulin. So you could have, you know, you could write us kind of or imagine a, a different point of origin, which is coming out of socialist networks that then get fractured by uh, the, by uh, really the, not necessarily specifically the Cold War, but the rise of Stalin for uh, these uh, particular activists. And um, that's a, I mean, in some ways that's a recasting a story of anti-colonial nationalism, much more with a uh, origins in global socialist networks uh, before the Second World War. But of course, these aren't actually distinct completely. And that is, I think, where you get this kind of slipperiness between what is this particular movement espousing, because they um, often have a, a lot of, they're often quite capacious. And that capaciousness will allow for size and strength and influence, but will also create often uh, internal disagreements and perhaps a uh, dispersion of focus. Just, yeah. So just to say, I think that Lydia and I are, are probably talking about some of the same, the same people ideologically that are kind of more on the, uh, my, my, the people I'm looking at also kind of socialists and became disillusioned with, and with Stalin. And so I think, you know, we, we also really need to recognize that there were transnational solidarity movements in this period that were, that were, you know, communist or more radical than, than that. And there were, there were transnational solidarities on the right, which I'm sure Lydia might talk about later on. But I think that especially, I think thinking about the more, the left and the kind of communist left as something that is is as 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 an incredibly generative movement for these solidarities, and we see that people that didn't uh, that still look to Soviet the, the Soviet Union as as a model, and a lot of those conflicts, I think, between socialists and communist intellectuals, even though they had been, many of them had been friends, had fought together before the war, I think that there are kind of a lot of splits that are happening in the left in this period in the 1950s. So even though Lydia and I are probably talking about the same people, I think it's important to recognize that broader realm of leftist activism that is happening in the 1950s and 60s, um, particularly among writers and intellectuals and, and, and what that means. Yeah, I mean, it's, so these labels, left, right, liberal, liberationist, we have to use them to a degree because that's how we can place people and groups on a political spectrum and actually identify their politics. But the labels themselves are incredibly limited, sorry, limiting and often uh, can make it difficult to see some connections that are actually happening often in private and not in public. And many of these 
movements, organizations, groups will collaborate with each other on certain issues and then not on others. I have a um, article draft that's in uh, sort of the review pipeline on Indian and US civil society um, advocacy on behalf of Tibet after the Dalai Lama arrives in uh, India in 1959. So these groups are, the Indians involved are really um, Suchita and uh, J.B. Kripalani. And the Americans involved are Lowell Thomas and Marvin Liebman and also Walter Judd, a host of often people who maybe not so much Lowell Thomas and other entities, but people who are often considered hardcore China hawks who earlier had actually been aligned to a degree with uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy and the House of Un-American Activities. Uh, while the uh, Indian political figures, uh, J.B. Kripalani is a very, is connected to Sarvodia in certain ways. And uh, Suchita Kripalani is in the Indian Congress Party government and ally of Nehru's. And these are not people you would think would be collaborating on a political question but they very much are on Tibet. But even though the elements within these groups actually hold representative roles within their national government, they set up civil society organizations that collaborate because the civil society organizations can collaborate, but the governments cannot to a degree in public, though they are in private. Uh, to, to a certain extent, Tibetan refugees in India receive a significant financial support from the Americans who are also getting significant money from the US State Department. So this is, you know, this really is, what is the line here between state and non-state? What is the, what is activism? What is like actual uh, national foreign policy? Who's an activist? Who represents a government? Those lines are blurred on purpose with issues like this. And uh, how we parse them can be a really interesting and, uh, and can really break these binaries. I mean, when I began that, um, the research for that article, I, didn't, I, di I thought the Indians and the Americans were working separately, completely separately. And then it was only in the archival research that I realized that they were funneling money to each other. There was a very close collaboration. And, got along very well on this issue, but not on others. Because the Walter Judd, uh, Marvin Liebman sort of advocacy complex in the US supported a, a host of right-wing political causes globally. Uh, Katanga in Southeastern Congo, Rhodesia. Um, they even supported um, apartheid South Africa. So this isn't the kind of people you would expect to be collaborating with elements of both the Indian government and sort of uh, Indian Gandhian civil society, but they do on uh, Tibet. And Marvin Liebman is a very interesting character because he was a member of the communist party before he experienced his sort of, what he would have called a, an epiphany. And when he, he ran a PR firm in the US and he kind of did all the paperwork for these uh, right-wing advocacy organizations um, from the 50s through the 70s. And he has a very gossipy uh, biography, autobiography, if anyone's interested. Um, I think it's called Coming Out Conservative. 
because he has a late life. He's a he's gay, um, and he has a late life. He comes out publicly during the Reagan administration when many of his old colleagues are actively in the Reagan administration. So it's a you know he's a complicated person. But I am digressing because what I wanted to say is, is early life, early career in the you know working as part of global communist networks is he explicitly says he uses the commu- that sort of a common turn playbook for these right-wing civil society groups in the United States supporting causes, uh, global causes on the political right. I'm gonna stop there. I have more to say about right-wing transnationalism and transnational solidarities because I think that often this conversation is really about organizations on the sort of either liberal or left, but a, uh, a transnational solidarity in itself is not, doesn't necessarily embrace a specific politics. Though I do think this elements of a shared struggle are, and Sulin's, the definition Sulin opened with, that there's this recognition of a shared struggle is absolutely central, but that shared struggle is not one that necessarily embraces a liberatory politics. Or maybe it's better to think liberation for whom? Often people have very different definitions of who needs liberation. Absolutely. I think that's a, it's a really good point. You know, and we, we're thinking about some of these movements can be incredibly, you know, they can be emancipatory, they can be generative of ideas and political strategies and platforms for struggles and agitation. But we also need to be wary about the hierarchies and motivations behind them as well, right? When we think about something like Afro-Asian solidarity, there was a feeling in some ways that Asia could lead and provide a model for African countries. And there was a real hierarchy there in terms of kind of, you know, that Asia would be the model uh, instead of the West. And that didn't explicitly recognize, you know, kind of desires and motivations of African countries. Did they want to be part of this this kind of realm of Afro-Asian solidarity? In many cases, some of them, you know, didn't. They they were more interested in Pan-Africanism particularly in in the late 50s and and 1960s. They were interested in what was happening with this movement of Afro-Asian solidarity and Kwame Nkrumah did send participants and and members of his government to the conference, but he was also not allowed to go, the British, you know, the British, but he was also kind of interested in just kind of seeing what was going on. And I think that Nasser was also involved as well. And that was part of Nasser's push to kind of be kind of leader of Africa as well as a leader of in, in, in that kind of Afro-Asian forum. But there's a lot of, there was a lot of competition happening between, between those particular figures. But I think we, we do need to recognize you know, some of the problems and the hierarchies within these movements, not only in anti-colonial solidarity, but things like um, transnational women's movements, right? When we think about the international women's movement in the 1920s and 30s, the kind of Europe, European-based international women's movement, again, there was an attempt there for kind of European women to provide a model for Asian women, Asian and African women, right? That, that you know, we are going to kind of show you how to be good feminists. And, and I think that there was a real pushback from that by kind of Asian and African feminists. Asian feminists, you know, had various Asian, Asian women's conferences and 
and and there was an Afro-Asian women's conference in, in the late 1950s and, and 1961 in Cairo as well, where kind of, you know, the, there's, a there's a need to recognize that the, that the Asian and African women have their own struggles. And within those movements, Asian women have their own struggles, African women have their own, own struggles. So Indonesian women have different struggles than Indian women. And I think that that is some of the, some of the problems with solidarity. It can gloss over some of the differences between particular movements movements and, and actors within those movements. And I think solidarity movements need to make room and recognize other kinds of parallels and differentiated movements that spring off and, and act in parallel to them and emerge in conversation. But I think that it is very important to recognize some of the hierarchies and limits within those solidarity movements. Thank you so much for that. To come back to some ideas that have come up in the in the discussion so far, I want to bring it back to the state. And in particular, I want to think about how these transnational solidarity movements that often can incorporate members of the state or their pals with the people who head the, head the state. I wonder what your thoughts are about that relationship between these movements and the states, but also about how, how those relationships can differ. Is it, for example, different in Euro-America uh, where that anti-colonial solidarity is not necessarily something that brings together transnational movements and it is, say, in the decolonizing world? Yeah, Ria, that's a really good question. So I think that state governments can find these movements and also the individuals, specifically the individuals who participate in these movements, tremendously useful at times. I gave that example around international civil society advocacy on behalf of Tibet, that this was, that uh, both the US and Indian government found uh, the use of, of civil society organizations. There was great utility for this being the public face of how not these countries were handling things, but how individuals associated with those countries were handling things because it wasn't an issue where um, either government wanted to be showing certain kinds of public aid. Though, of course, so much was happening in private and also so much was happening at the level of covert operations. Carol McGranahan has a, a wonderful ethnography of, she has a, several pieces of ethnographic work on both Tibetan insurgents and also their uh, US CIA trainers so that you can, you can have these kinds of solidarities happening um, at the level of quite of violent and, you know, we think of as insurgency and counterinsurgency. I have a side interest in mercenary networks, whether it's sort of what happens to uh, many uh, French military officers after the end of Algeria. Uh, officers who had wanted to keep Algeria as French and even wage their own uh, insurgency to try to uh, prevent that, um, the secret army organization. What happens to them? Uh, some of them end up working as mercenaries on um, a host of other African uh, decolonization questions, whether it's Katanga, whether it's Biafra, where it's eventually the um, Comoros. Others and and some of the same guys then go also go to uh, Latin America and are sort of military trainers for uh, regimes there. And, and some of these guys later on found um, military contracting firms. And there's a whole sort of much more modern story of 
how mercenaries sort of become military contractors and, uh, and contractors that are hired by state governments. This is the kind of sets of solidarities that are very difficult to research, um, which is why there is um, not very much academic history on them, but and much in rather instead uh, popular writing, fictionalized accounts, a lot of movie, you know, subject of uh, movies and film. And it's quite interesting to think about what are the subjects that get treated academically versus what are the subjects that have much more sort of popular uh, history purchase. So I mean, state, non-state, I think there's, I'm, I think on the one hand, state governments can find these movements and people incredibly useful, whether they are peace activists or mercenaries, which is kind of an interesting dichotomy. At the same time, they can be very threatening. So I, I mentioned a little bit uh, Michael Scott, who is a member of the Brigade community uh, and most famous as an anti-apartheid activist, especially, and also a, a spokesman for uh Herreros in uh, Namibia, the United Nations. He was personally recommended by British politicians to American politicians as an expert on African liberation questions. And he may well have briefed quite high up in Washington, DC. At the same time, when he visited the United States, he was only allowed within like, a, I need to find uh, the, the specifics, but it's almost like a 15 mile radius of the United Nations. He was not allowed beyond that. It was always quite difficult for him to get a visa to the United States for this reason when he petitioned the UN. And the reason behind this was because he had been a member of the Communist Party before the Second World War. So on the one hand, here's someone who has a lot of access, a lot of very high level political connections. On the other hand, he's constantly considered uh, somewhat of a threat. So there's, I think that these state non-state distinctions are quite important, quite pertinent, but they don't necessarily cut in the ways you might expect. State governments like these movements or they like aspects of these organizations, but the movements themselves are incredibly destabilizing to a state government. And I can see that in my work on the brigade community where nat leaders of nationalist movements really like the brigade, really like what they're doing. Uh, they seek out this advocacy, they make it work for them. When they become, when some of them become uh, leaders of actual state governments, they completely break with, these, with, their, with their advocates to a degree, often in uh, moderately acrimonious ways because this transnational advocacy that was incredibly useful for them as a nationalist movement is undermining as a uh, state government. So that, and how this fits in with the history of decolonization. Sulin mentioned the 50s and 60s, this moment of world making and desire to push back against the Cold War system, to push back against this fear. It's also, um, especially on the African continent, a moment of incredible political flux and what's a nationalist movement versus a state government is the change is happening uh, so rapidly in some places and then of course stalled in others. And that this gives these movements, these organizations, these individuals real space to operate in, in a case where they may not have, they wouldn't have it in uh, a, few, a few years later. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking a little too much time here, but I just want to reiterate that I think state governments 
can use these individuals, use these organizations, and at the same time find them incredibly threatening. Um, thanks, Lydia. Um, yeah, I think I think that was kind of similar to what I was going to say. That you know we often think about these transnational solidarities movements and and ident- identifications as operating in the realm of civil society and you know radical activism apart from or counter to the state, but they can also be driven by the state, used by the state in ways that Lydia was was talking about, right? Um, so for instance, that Afro-Asian conference that I was thinking about, you know, that this is this is really about enhancing the prestige of post-colonial nations and, and really kind of trying to create a sense of international solidarity among these very new nations. And but also thinking about the prestige that happens when when states hold kind of UN kind of women's conferences or, you know, kind of become arenas of kind of state-led internationalism. So I think that there can be ways in which um, um, the kind of motivations of the state and particular governments really kind of align with with kind of transnational solidarity as, as a movement or as an identification or as a political project. And in terms of your question, Ria, about the differences in in the global south and and the global north, I think that one thing that happens in in Southeast Asia and in the region that I'm most familiar with is that we have these periods of authoritarianism that happen um, from the mid-60s and and the 1970s and 80s, and where you have military dictatorships, in some cases backed by the US and Indonesia and the Philippines, um, also in, in Myanmar, and we have a clampdown on activist movements, on civil society, especially on the left and any kind of stink of the left at all, or any kind of anything that 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 seems like the left at all. So once we have a kind of loosening of those governments, especially in the kind of 1990s, and um, and especially you know maybe in in some cases beginning in the 1980s with the the kind of the growth of a middle class, but also kind of increasing freedoms that are happening and and the rise of NGOs. Um, Then we have this kind of renewed sense of transnational solidarities that are happening and and really kind of formalized, especially where we have NGOs in some cases operating underneath the radar of the state, but also recognized by the state in in spaces of emerging civil society, even though those spaces can be quite threatening. And And that certainly happens, especially in the 1990s with the fall of those governments and a real sense of the possibilities of transnational solidarity. So I think that, you know, we just have to recognize the kind of ways in which political spaces can open up or clamp down for these kind of transnational solidarities to emerge. And I would also say that, you know, one thing that happens, especially in the context of military governments and particularly repressive ones, is that we have the emergence of transnational solidarity movements agitating against those governments from abroad. You know, we have human rights organizations for the rights of political prisoners in Indonesia, TAPL, um, that, that was an organization based in London and Amsterdam, whose founder, Carmel Budiarjo, just, just died recently. Um, Burma campaign based in London and, and other Burma campaigns in Tibet, as, as uh, Lydia mentioned. So some of these transnational solidarity organizations and activists take start, you know, start agitating from, from abroad. When this, when that space of activism in the state is clamped down, yeah, I think this is actually a really interesting opening. Is when is it a sign of influence and prestige to be operating internationally, and when is it a sign of domestic weakness? 
because I mean, I think sometimes it can be both, but I think um, earlier on in my research, I tended to think that being networked internationally was a sign of uh, privilege and prestige, uh, regardless of origin, was a sign of a level of education, a level of access, a level of connection. But on the other hand, which is, which is, I think, uh, completely true. Um, but on the other hand, it's also a sign of, at times, of not having a, a strong enough domestic constituency and support to have the same degree of mobilization at home. The ability to go into exile in, to a degree can be is a sign of those network connections. And yet, once you're in exile, you're not able to be influencing what's happening often with the ground zero of your struggle. I mean, you may well, but often it, the, it can become uh, much more uh, attenuated over time. Yeah, when is being part of these international networks a sign of influence and when is it a sign of uh, weakness? I think at times in my work, I've almost argued that UN petitioning is a weapon of the weak rather than necessarily a sign of the power and influence of the individual's claim. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's, 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 and I've often wondered this about, you know, whether there's a space of the international where we have kind of activism, transnational solidarity emerging and, and, and whether kind of, you know, there's that, there's that really difficult domestic space of activism that's constantly dealing with bureaucracy and politics and at a very national level and a local level that maybe transnational solidarity doesn't matter as much. I mean, maybe it, re it really is about that difficult domestic work of, <laughs> you know, of, of government petitioning or, or agitation or joining politics or running for office or that kind of thing. So yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. Just to, briefly say that difficult domestic space, I think of politics is itself, you can have a sort of activism, you can have, a, is, is maybe somewhat separate from activism in general. Mm -hmm. um, and here I'm thinking of Aram Sharmila in uh, Manipur in Northeast India, who spent years and years on a hunger strike, essentially mm -hmm. imprisoned mm -hmm. and was held up as sort of the symbol of struggle and disenfranchisement for Manipur specifically and the extension, which he was specifically protesting was the Armed Forces Special Power Act in uh, areas of Manipur, but also for um, the relationship of, of spaces within Northeast India regarding the government in New Delhi in general. And she had this substantial domestic uh, profile and to a degree international. And then a couple years ago, she broke her hunger strike saying, I want to be chief minister of Manipur. I want to enter politics. I don't want to be this saintly figure anymore. And she ran for office and she did absolutely terribly. And no one there, no one in Manipur very much wanted her to be a political figure. The saint in the hospital was a much, they saw that as the appropriate role for her. And I mean, there's a lot of other internal politics to money for about this. There's also a, I think, a gender element to this. You know, this isn't the space to get into that. But it is, I've often found it interesting that her as this Gandhian figure, not the way Gandhi himself actually was, but as a Gandhian figure, she was able 
to be the focal point of a tremendous amount of domestic activism, but to enter actual domestic politics, there wasn't that space for her. Yeah, I was thinking similarly when you were talking about Aung San Suu Kyi and her kind of incredible international profile and also domestic, the saintliness that she was, she has been held internationally and domestically, but the problems that happened as she entered politics and, and you know, and, and moved out of that space. But anyway, we can have, that's probably time for another conversation to be had. <laughs> um. I think this is possibly the last thing we'll be able to discuss and all we've got time left for, but um, I thought we might want to end on the note of, given that we started with emancipatory, liberatory world-making and we sort of brought this to more failed efforts and, and in discussing these sort of saintly but impactful figures. So I wondered if, what lasting impacts you think transnational solidarity movements have left on the world as we know it? So I... I have qualms with the kind of success versus failure binary we often frame movements with, struggles, careers, bodies of work. I understand why we do that, why we use it, because it's how you understand accomplishment. But often success versus failure may be a matter of chosen end date. You know, in uh, 1966, It did not look like Namibia was going to become independent. In some ways, you could have argued that looked like a failed struggle for national liberation to a degree and the success of apartheid. And in, well, certainly by 1990, but even in the sort of run up to the 80s into the, to 1990, when Namibia actually became independent, this is a successful liberation movement. So I, I do think I have qualms about what we term success and failure because I think it has a lot to do with the vantage point that we take and the chosen end date to the frame of, uh, to the study. And that an end date itself isn't a kind of argument. So there's a lot that goes on to into saying something is a success versus a failure. Also influence. You really don't know how something is going to the lasting ramifications for Uh, a struggle. I mean, Sulin and I talked a bit about this interwar era, uh, communist networks, socialist networks, and then kind of the Cold War, the rise of Stalinism fracturing them, and you still had actual communist networks and the Comintern, but you also had many of the people who had belonged to them embracing a kind of Cold War liberalism and becoming a much more a liberal internationalist and really almost like a, you can see this in the international peace movement. There's still a, there's an international peace movement that's a communist uh, during this 50s, 60s era, but they're not talking to the World Peace Brigade. There's no longer those, those kinds of uh, dialogue and connections between those groups that there had been before. So would we say that, that that kind of interwar socialism failed because of um, the rise of Stalin? I don't think so. I think instead we'd be sort of tracing the connections and what it became. So I, I'm very hesitant to call any, anything specifically a, a failure, especially because I think these aspirations end up uh, shaping horizons of a future possibility. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good insight, Lydia. I would just say, you know, in terms of, of the impacts of, of, of these movements, you know, they can be very generative arenas again, you know, and arenas and and I think specifically, and I'm talking about, you know, maybe this is this is really about kind of leftist and liberal solidarities that I uh, that but arenas that we re that we rep represent and we recognize voices that have been underrepresented and marginalized and and tell those stories and make room for those stories and make room to 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 recognize what is happening there and structures of oppression that are affecting those communities or peoples and that is an ongoing process and history is an ongoing process of recognizing where those have happened and 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 how those how particular movements have have made have made room had recognized and also have been forgotten right and I think you know Ria you posed this question about if changes that they bring in arts and culture as well as right as rights and polit politics and economy the Afro-Asian movement I think you know it was was in a way had died you know in terms of its kind of activist potential and and political potential by the late 60s and 70s, again, probably because of this kind of rising authoritarianism. But you, you saw it kind of resurgent, have a resurgence in other areas, in, in culture, in Lotus Magazine, which was based in Cairo, and, and really was a forum for leading writers and poets across Asia and Africa, from Chinua Achebe and, and Gugi Wathiango, uh, to Chinese and North Vietnamese and Indonesian and Algerian and Palestinian writers and poets, right? Um, and art and for them to kind of seek to, to see all this and to have it, you know, be shared in, in a similar kind of publication and frame. And, you know, so I think that these movements have, you know, they go and resurge in different forms in a way that Lydia is talking about. The economy, you know, I think that the economy is just one of those incredibly difficult, impossible, the impossibilities of overcoming the dominance of the global north and, and the kind of structures of, of inequality. And, but there have been attempts to do this. And uh, in the 1970s and, and increasingly attempts at South, South cooperation. But I think it, again, is so, is, is really difficult. But we have this kind of resurgence of not only scholarship, but also activism around socialism, around solidarity, especially by the young, about radical reformulations of, of patriarchy and gender. And I think that it's a cliche to kind of look to young people as a kind of, you know, as people that are kind of recovering these solidarities and, and maybe and recasting them in new ways. But I think that's to have any hope for, <laughs> for kind of dismantling these structures of oppression. That's kind of what we have to do. Many thanks to Lydia Walker and Sulin Lewis for taking part in this conversation. You can learn more about them and their work on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.